will knock the wind out of us. We don't get to choose. But we come to the ethical society knowing all that. And because, among other things, it promises to reach out to us when we're hurting, comfort us when we mourn, assure us when we are troubled, challenge us to do our part, call us to be our fullest selves when we would do less. Stand with us when single strength is insufficient to hear our glories, to share our disappointments, and to stand with us throughout the days of our lives. We say these things in so many words in our statement of purpose that Susan read to us, that we say every week. And we live them in the ways too numerous to recount. And at the heart of it all, the heart of ethical culture is compassion. It is what leads the work we do outside these walls. It is what champions the kind of world we wish to inhabit. It it is what guides us to the kind of people we want to be. Compassion, it is said, is the outward expression of our inner awareness of our own vulnerability. It is the leading indicator of our moral strength. In in its essence, in its essence, compassion is about bearing burdens that are not ours, but in other circumstances might be. I wanted to talk about this today because, as you know, this has been an especially intense pastoral time in this community, and it has occurred to me more than ever this past year that it would be wonderful if we had a team of members with a sense of calling and training to do the work of pastoral care alongside Amanda and me, to visit or support others, to visit members in need who are housebound or lonely or mourning, or to put together systems for arranging meals or transportation and the like, And lucky girl that I am, virtually every person that I ask to be on the team accepted. This is a very demanding team. We meet regularly. We will be meeting twice a month for a while, putting together an ethical agreement covering things like confidentiality. We've been working through sample case studies and talking about what it truly means to listen. You will be hearing more about this fine and loving team who are especially charged to provide pastoral care when I go on sabbatical next month, and who will be doing the deepest work of ministry. You'll be hearing about that in the February newsletter. They will be commissioned at a special ceremony on January 30th, which is the last Sunday before I leave. We also realize the importance of just having someone check in with our members from time to time. Check in with them with no agenda. No recruiting. No ask of any kind. Just a reaching out. Do I hear applause? (laughs) Just a reaching out to stay in connection and learn of any concerns or needs. And they will be calling the full directory this month, and I hope you look forward to those calls. 
We find many ways, beautiful, imaginative ways, to stand with each other when a crisis happens to someone in our congregation. We bring in meals. We give rides to the hospital. We send cards. We run errands. We call. We offer, offer hugs, and we hold hands. We companion members who are lonely. We attend to members who are dying, and we are good at this. We are known for the quality of our caring in this community. And we are known for the support we give to others to reach past their fear of caring in order to be more whole. It was maybe 25 years ago when I first visited someone in the hospital who was seriously ill and on the verge of death. I remember how apprehensive I was as I approached his room the smells and sounds of the hospital, the sights along the corridor as I moved toward the the room. Now, I had been around sickness and death with members of my own family and with close friends. But in this instance, I was visiting someone I didn't know very well, a relatively new West member, but who had gotten to know me in a class and had asked for me to come. I remember that my biggest worry was that I just wouldn't have a clue about what to say or would blurt out something that would sound just plain dumb or insensitive. I worried that his family would turn to me for comfort and I would only be able to stare blankly back at them or burst into tears and that my awkwardness would be grating. Each time in those first hospital visits, I thought to myself, I don't have to do this. I can just turn around right now and walk out, and no one will be the worse for it. But I never did. And what I learned was that as soon as I entered the room, my fears vanished. I learned that as soon as I saw real people, instead of abstract ideas of illness and disease and death, my fear vanished. I never saw cancer at the hospital, which would have scared me. I saw people with cancer. Instead of being frightened, I felt love. I never saw AIDS, just people with AIDS, people who were scared or frightened or crying or laughing or smiling bravely or weeping in despair or calmly waiting. Mostly, I didn't say much of anything. I learned to listen. I found that by listening very carefully and by focusing all my energy on that person instead of me, where my attention usually is, that I could begin to know what to do and how to give comfort. What I found was that the people who were sick, the families that were frightened, didn't care at all what I said. What they wanted mostly was someone to witness and to listen. And sometimes we just sat in silence. We have been through a lot these last few months at WES. A number of our members have been hospitalized. Some have died. And many of us still are in mourning. And when we're confronted by another suffering, we often find ourselves speechless, or we can't seem to shut up. 
We wish we could be of help or comfort, but find that we're paralyzed when it comes to actually picking up the phone or writing that note or going to visit. Does this ring true with anybody here? And so we withdraw from loved ones and friends, not because we don't care, but because we care so much we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. And this is the mistake individuals often make when there is someone who is obviously suffering. We feel that if we cannot offer a fix, we shouldn't offer anything at all. We are a community of fixers. We know how to fix things, how to problem solve, how to research solutions, but contrary to what common sense may tell us, we often are more help to each other when we simply can be with each other in compassionate presence as listeners than we are as givers of advice and fixers. When we jump in to offer solutions, we're functioning more like case managers or pretend doctors. Medical professionals work on cures. But what we can offer is something different from that. What we offer is witnessing another's life, holding it with them, and deeply listening, which leads to healing. My husband, Gene, tells the story of how one day following his brain surgery, he woke up to find his good friend, Steve Skolnick, sitting at the end of the bed, leaning on his elbows and smiling at him. He says that neither of them said anything and that he continued to drift in and out of sleep for hours. And each time he awoke, Steve would still be sitting there, rubbing his legs. And when he saw that Gene had awakened, he smiled at him again. I don't believe that there were ever any words exchanged that day, but a great deal of healing and loving were present. And to be honest, when we're unsure of ourselves or feel vulnerable in this kind of situation, we do sometimes say things that are just plain irritating rather than helpful. How many times in my childhood, maybe this is true of you as well, did you hear one relative tell another things like, there's light at the end of the tunnel, time heals all wounds, Suffering makes us stronger. The trick is to make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> or how about this one? Dry those tears and keep a stiff upper lip. Or all you really need is to have a good cry and you'll feel just fine. Or all things work out for the best. Or God has a plan or other similarly inane responses that we've heard all too often. Or we try to minimize their pain. Oh, your mother was 85 when she died? That's longer than most of us have lived. Well, I can tell you that when my mother died, I could have cared less, less how long others lived. I wanted her. Or we attempt to be empathetic and we say, I know just how you feel. Well, we don't. No one can ever know what another feels. 
Sometimes when something happens to someone, their reaction may seem to us to be over the top, way out of kilter to what seemed to have just happened. But when people do react with what we might think of as excessive displays of angst, we also have to remember that sorrow is cumulative. Loss is cumulative. What we're reacting to now may be the result of many losses. And all we can say is, I'm so sorry. I can see that this is a terrible loss for you. Forrest Church, the former senior minister of All Souls Unitarian Church in Manhattan, passed away a few years ago. It was a terrible loss. But in the midst of his dying, he wrote a marvelous book called Love and Death. And in it, among many other things, he gives helpful advice about hospital visits. When you visit someone in the hospital, he said, sit don't stand. People have been looking down at your friend all day long. Be her friend. Greet her eye to eye. Don't go into the room with plans for what you'll talk about. Let your friend lead. Don't stay too long, especially if your friend is hurting. If your friend is hurting, stay only five to ten minutes, sitting down, holding hands, talking quietly, and that's about right. And above all, if it doesn't seem that she will get better soon, don't ever say everything will turn out fine. Saying things like this, church says, may make you feel better, may make you feel better, but it won't do a thing for her and may set her up for failure. Here's what you can say. Tell her you love her. Tell him he has meant a lot to you and that you will miss him and how you will carry him with you in your heart forever. One person in church's congregation wrote to him after reading his book and said, I would like to know that I would be missed by someone, not necessarily to have done something that would be remembered by the masses, but to have my daughter say, I love you and I'll miss you, Mom. I can't manage I'd need anything else. Imagine I would need anything else. And what about us? Some of us have trouble with the feelings that can come up when we get close to people in pain. We hate feeling vulnerable and needy. We hate not knowing how things will turn out for ourselves or for others. We want certainty. It's the appeal of the fundamentalist churches. We all want certainty. And so we keep ourselves at a distance. We try selectively to numb ourselves. But, of course, we can't selectively numb emotion. We can't numb the bad stuff, the grief, the disappointment, the fear. We try with alcohol and overeating or oversleeping or drugs or overbusiness. We can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the others. 
When we numb the bad stuff, we numb joy and gratitude and love. Brene Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston, studies human connection, our ability to empathize and to belong and to love. She is amazing. Are you all familiar with TED? The TED.com, it's the um, videos of amazing speakers. She is my favorite. I think I've, I've listened to the one that she does on vulnerability about six times. Here's what she's found. She's been studying this for, for years. She has, for 10 years, and she has heard thousands of stories and read thousands of pages of journal entries. And what she's found has been most surprising. In fact, she says on the video that she had to go into therapy. She found that those people who experience the most connectedness and who live with a sense of worthiness in their lives fully embrace their vulnerability. They fully embrace their vulnerability. Of all the things she could have said, of all the things she could have found, it's that they fully embrace their vulnerability. They didn't talk about their vulnerability as being distasteful or excruciating, just necessary. They live with a certain wholeheartedness and with courage, specifically the courage to be imperfect and also to be compassionate. They are willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they are. They are willing to be the first to say, I'm sorry, the first to say, I love you. They are willing to embrace their vulnerability, the lack of certainty, to breathe through difficult times and believe that they are enough, imperfect and enough. Here in this community, we expose the lie of rugged individualism. The lie that tells us that it is a failing, a weakness to depend on other people. The lie that tells us that our stories and our struggles are of no interest to anyone. The lie that tells us that when we haltingly search for the words we wish to say, we are wasting someone else's valuable time and energy. The lie that tells us that to be compassionate is to be weak. I'm often asked how I handle going to be with, so often, with people who are dying. I could never do that, some people say. It must be so depressing. And it is true, as a good number of you know, that it can be very sad, but it is not depressing. When you are with someone who is dying, you can be given the wonderful privilege of talking with them about the most important aspects of their life. People at the end of their life speak of what is important, their hopes and their dreams. And they talk about love almost exclusively. It's true that they don't talk about unfinished business at work. 
They talk about unfinished business in their intimate relationships. We end up talking together about the loves that make us whole, the loves that gave us joy and meaning, and the loves that broke our hearts. The loves we loved well and the loves we didn't. It is humbling and profound. We know that one of the advantages of belonging to a loving community is that we will encounter people in all their sadness and their struggles and their unspeakable losses and also their triumphs, their utter joy. And we'll get to see how they're working this all out, how they're working in it, all of this recasting and expanding of who we, they thought they were. I look around this room today, and I see a room filled with people, and I see the fullness of humanity. I see some people who are having a good day and others not. Some experiencing good health and others not feeling so well. Some having known great joy and others filled with hope. And I see people, I see people in this room who have been my greatest teachers in how to push past my fears and my safety in order to care for others. I hope that we also realize that another advantage of belonging to a loving community is that sometimes we will be called upon to provide that care for others. There really is no greater gift than to be asked to sit with another human being and simply be human with them. I hope that none of us will be frightened of providing care for those in need. I hope that none of us will miss the chance of experiencing the fullness of humanity because we are thinking of abstractions instead of persons. I hope none of us will think that we haven't anything to say or to give. As we go forward today, I hope that we will all look for new ways to bring compassion into every dimension of our life together in this community. All of the things we do together matter. What we teach, what we sing, the agendas in our board meetings, how we conduct ourselves in coffee hour. How might we do each of them a little differently, with more tenderness and attention, with more patience and affection, with more deep listening, and with a solid core at the center, that core of compassion and kindness. SAS Branda Euland once wrote, unless you listen, you can't know anybody. Oh, you'll know the facts and what is in the newspapers and all of the history, perhaps, but you will not know one single person. I have come to think, listening in love, that's what it really is. So may we listen this way, care for each other in this way, and be known to each other in all of who we are.